0: Welcome to the second episode of Arbitration Insider, the arbitration podcast series of Freshfields and NIAC. I am Olivier André, Client Relationship Advisor with Freshfields in the International Arbitration Group in New York.
1: And I'm Rika Rangachari, Executive Director of NIAC. Welcome everyone to Episode 2. And Olivier, a real treat to moderate this podcast with you.
0: Before we get started with the episode, I have the pleasure of welcoming Lee Haber-Cook as our special guest. Lee, you are a partner at SCADEN in the International Litigation and Arbitration Group based in New York. And some of us know you because you are one of the co-authors of the 2020 ICA New York City Bar CPR cybersecurity protocol for international arbitration. You have recently been appointed as the Chair of the New York International Arbitration Week Organizing Committee, and more recently as the new Chair of the Arbitration Committee of the New York City Bar Association. Congratulations. It's a real pleasure to have you with us today.
2: Thank you, Olivier, and congratulations to you and Rekha on, on this new podcast. I'm really honored to be invited to participate in one of your first episodes.
0: Fantastic. So, Lee, as the new chair of the New York Arbitration Week, can you give us a little preview of what to expect?
2: So, I'm really thrilled to be co chairing this year's New York Arbitration Week with Matt Draper. Please mark your calendars for November 15th through the 19th. We have just put together a stellar organizing committee, both in terms of experience and diverse perspectives. And um, we expect to have an official kickoff announcement in the next few weeks. And we're going to start moving forward, getting the programming for the event organized. This is going to be the third New York Arbitration Week. You know, the first one was in person. The second one was virtual. And then this year, we're hoping to combine sort of the best of both And, you know, one of the positive things about being forced to have a totally virtual event last year was that we saw we really provided us with the opportunity to have participants from all over the world who might not otherwise be able to travel to New York. And we want to continue to have opportunities for those people to participate. So at the same time, you know, it feels like there's really an excitement about people being able to gather in person in some form. We're going to see how we can work with that, given whatever COVID restrictions may still be in place in November. and. And, you know, hopefully we're going to have a great hybrid event.
0: Excellent. Well, we look very much forward to to that, seeing many of our colleagues again in person, hopefully. So, as I said, you've recently, very recently, been appointed the new chair of the Arbitration Committee of the New York City Bar Association. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your goals as chair?
2: Yes, it's going to be a a very busy and an exciting year. We're in the process of of putting this year's arbitration committee together now, and we're going to be ready to get to work in September. Steve Skolnick and, and Dana McGrath before him left very big shoes to fill, and I'm looking forward to building on all their great work when they led the committee. You know, there are cases and legislation that we're watching, and I hope the City Bar will sponsor a program during New York Arbitration Week, as they've done in in prior years. But I'm really looking forward to working with this year's committee to come up with some exciting new initiatives. I really don't want us to focus anymore on sort of lessons learned from the pandemic and the pros and cons of virtual proceedings. Instead, I want us to think about where we are today and what the future of arbitration is looking like and what projects the committee can do to lead the arbitration community in whatever direction that may be. I'm looking forward to working with the committee to put some of those interesting initiatives together that will move us forward as we emerge from the pandemic. And I'm really looking forward to listening to the rest of the podcast and and hearing what people are seeing as the current trends and what we can do to assist the arbitration community as, as those things move forward.
0: Thank you very much, Lee. It was a pleasure to host you for Episode 2 of Arbitration Insider. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Olivier, and great to hear from Lee. This episode focuses on disputes we can expect to see in 2021, arising out of but not limited to the pandemic in both international commercial and investment arbitration, with perspectives from outside and in-house counsel and leaders of arbitral institutions. The theme for this episode is change, underscoring the dynamism that permeates our global disputes practice, even through a major health crisis. International arbitration gained its best marketing during this trying period, offering access to issue resolution and due process against the backdrop of national court closures. Join us as we take a look at the state of play.
0: The pandemic impact is expected to continue well into 2021 and subsequent years, with claims of force majeure, materially adverse change, and economic impossibility in addition to others. Today, we have the pleasure of hosting Agit Elul, a partner and co-chair of the International Arbitration Group at Hughes, Hubbard, and Reed in New York. Agit, within international commercial arbitration, what industries have been the most impacted and what kind of disputes have you seen the most?
3: Well, first of all, Olivier, um, I want to thank you and uh, NIAC and Freshfields for inviting me to this. So this is a, um, a great development in arbitration um, to uh, be promoting podcasts and I'm, I'm happy to be participating. As far as the uh, sectors and types of disputes that we're seeing, I think one thing that surprised everyone is when the pandemic first started, I, I there was an expectation that there was going to be, um, you know, a big spiral towards a lot of disputes. And I think for the most part, we have not seen that. We have seen an uptick in commercial disputes, but I don't think it's been as dire, for example, as it was after the financial crisis um, that we had in 2008. And I think one reason for that is that government support and government backing of industries, I think, has been helpful in um, stemming the tide of, of some disputes. However, you still do see disputes and in the sectors that I think that one would expect. So aviation has been particularly hard hit. And for example, aviation supply contracts and leasing contracts is one area where we're seeing disputes arise. Mergers were hit in general. And at the beginning of the pandemic, we were seeing a lot of disputes arising uh, out of a material adverse event. I think those are for the most part falling um, by the wayside, because now contracting parties uh, understand the landscape that they're entering into um, with contracts. But in terms of sectors, we're we're seeing disputes in aviation, hospitality, travel. And also disputes in uh, information technology supporting those industries, which was a little bit of a surprise to me because that's the type of service contract that can be performed even if everybody's sitting at home. But the um, decrease in demand in those sectors, I think, has uh, impacted those industries And in addition, you're seeing disputes in any industry that relies on anything more than the most simplistic supply chain logistics. The supply chain disruptions that we've seen have been unprecedented and uh, have impacted all, all industries.
0: Thank you, Agit. And going forward, what types of disputes do you think we will be seeing?
3: I believe we're going to be continuing to see force majeure disputes. I don't think that we're going to be seeing as much material adverse change or material adverse event disputes. And we will be seeing disputes in the context of the insurance industry as uh, companies press claims to their insurers and insurers make the decision whether to allow or disallow Claims. The other area which I've seen an uptick, at least from the jurisprudence perspective, is the intersection between bankruptcy and insolvency and arbitration. As companies enter into insolvency, there's an impact on uh, the arbitrability of disputes, and I think that you'll be seeing more of that.
0: Over the past few months, we have also gone from in-person to remote hearings via video conferencing, which has shown the incredible capacity of the arbitration community to adapt. At this point, many months after the start of the pandemics, do you have any thoughts about the future of remote hearings?
3: Well, the arbitration community has been so successful at adapting to remote hearings that I don't think you're going to be seeing an end to them anytime soon. of course, for complex merits disputes where there's a lot of witnesses involved, I think that there is going to be the natural preference towards in-person hearings. But for shorter procedural conferences or procedural hearings or oral argument, I think those will continue to be remote. I don't think that anybody's going to be flying around the world for a one-day hearing anytime soon.
0: Thank you, Regit
3: sitting
1: down with Noah Rubens, QC, partner in the Freshfields Paris office and head of the International Arbitration Practice Group in Paris, in addition to the firm CIS Russia Dispute Resolution Practice Group. Noah, it's a delight to have you. Welcome.
4: Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here.
1: The pandemic has juxtaposed sovereign power and states of emergency against, for example, fair and equitable treatment of investors. How can we make sense of this duality where one argues farce and other the other force majeure in the investor-state disputes context?
4: Well, I think there's, there's nothing new about that tension, right? We we're seeing that tension a little bit now in post-pandemic disputes, uh, but from time to time there have been Massive disruptions, economic and social disruptions, uh, mostly in capital-importing states, that have led to a range of, uh, of of investment disputes. And that tension is always there. The Argentine crisis at the beginning of the 2000s is the most obvious example, where although it wasn't a global problem, it was certainly at least as serious a problem for Argentina. There were uh, many people forget now there are riots in the streets, people died in Buenos Aires. Uh, And the response to that crisis led to dozens of arbitrations uh, being brought against Argentina, most of which they lost. And again, in 2008, we had a global financial crisis, and that in turn caused states to take actions, which investors who were protected by treaties took issue with later on and brought a series of claims, and, and the most famous of those being the 30 or 40 claims against Spain in relation to the rollback of the renewable energy uh, remuneration regime in Spain. So the reaction to this crisis um, is no different, and the dilemma is no different in that there is uh, always going to be recognized some margin of uh, freedom of regulation of the state. And the only question is, when does that regulation, when does that state intervention uh, countervene the promises that the state has given to qualifying investors under investment treaties? That is always the same question. Now, in the context of the pandemic, I think we probably expected a bit more in terms of disputes coming out of the very widespread measures taken by states. And there could be a few different kinds of those measures that you might think uh, could lead to trouble. The most obvious one at first, say last year, was people were saying, well, there's all these lockdowns, essentially destroying businesses in the interest of public health. Right, stopping businesses from operating the way they normally do, and uh, many people were asking at that time, "Well, isn't this going to lead to a huge number of investment treaty cases?" I at the time said I very much doubt it because it would be very odd, I think, if a tribunal were to find that it was unfair and in- inequitable uh, that measures to prevent the spread of a deadly virus uh, would be unfair, even if they did negatively impact. Uh, protected foreign investors. The more troublesome kinds of claims would come out of re- responses in terms of economic recovery, where states begin to look inward as a result of economic downturn that is the product of the pandemic. And here you very well may see, and I think we have seen in some places, nationalistic responses, responses which favor local business over foreign business and act in a way which is not proportional or directly targeting uh, the problem at hand. That's precisely what happened in Argentina and in Spain with awards against the state, despite the fact that there was a pretty good policy reason for what they were doing.
1: Thanks so much. I think, you know, you've beautifully charted this issue that we're having, be it um, national crisis or global crisis and state action and what measures um, that come out of that. The other thing we wanted to talk about with you is um, in recent years, there's been an evolution of investment treaties, termination of treaties, the emergence of new model bits and mits that have struck ISDS. How will this all impact the landscape of global investment disputes and the industries involved therein?
4: I think there's no question that there will be fewer investment treaty disputes uh, in the years to come as the old broad uh, treaties are either terminated or expire and are replaced by more restrictive protections and ones uh, in, in some cases treaties, which do not provide for investor state arbitration. I think there's a lot of people get kind of upset about that. And you'd find that most of those people are in big law firms and who, who have made a pretty good living over recent years in this area. Um, what I try to remind people uh, about is that the treaties are the product of state cooperation. Absent that cooperation, if there's no will between two or more states to come to an agreement to relinquish their sovereignty, there there is no treaty and there is no arbitration. And, and so uh, people tend to forget that as much as those who represent investors would like there to be lots of disputes and lots of fun, interesting and profitable work to do, it all depends what the parties agree. It all depends what the states agree. And the most important thing is that regardless of whether a treaty is broad or narrow, whether it has ISDS or it doesn't have ISDS, whether it has an umbrella clause or doesn't have an umbrella clause or whatever it may be, that the treaty is read for what it is. The treaty is read according to its terms to reflect the intent of those particular state parties in their particular economic, political, and diplomatic context. And I'm, I'm afraid that very often in both directions, that isn't happening. That is to say, uh, arbitral tribunals are departing from the treaty text and making generalizations about what should be rather than looking at what is.
1: You've hit upon nicely, underscoring party autonomy and state choice. And also, there's more to come in this battle of ISDS happening also at Working Group 3 of UNCITRAL, as well as in many other forums. Um, so thank you so much, Noah, for sitting down with us to take a deep dive into in a short period of time, ISDS, its evolution, and the COVID-19
4: impact. Thank you for inviting me.
0: 2020 definitely turned out to be a year no one expected. The fallout from the pandemic is expected to continue well into 2021. But with the vaccine rollout, there is hope that we will also see the beginning of a global economic recovery and a return to a new normal. Patricia Garcia, you are senior legal counsel for Vinci Airports, which is part of the concession branch of the Vinci Group, which is a large infrastructure multinational company based in France. Thank you for being with Arbitration Insider today. First, I wanted to ask you if you could tell us a little bit about the challenges you had to face as an in-house counsel throughout this pandemic.
5: Thank you, Olivier. Uh, Well, I work for a company which invests in the airport sector. The airport sector was one of the most affected by this pandemic. Air traffic went drastically down since March 2020 as a result of the containment measures taken by governments to prevent the spread of COVID. And so did our airport revenues. So, this created a huge stress on our stakeholders, such as lenders, service providers, and commercial partners. In order to deal with this, we had to undertake a deep legal analysis in more than 15 jurisdictions where we are present to assess the contractual and legal remedies that we could have to cope up with the situation. As you can imagine, the solution is not the same everywhere. It depends a lot on how the pandemic is qualified within the legal framework and the contractual risk allocation of each investment.
0: Thanks, Patricia. What types of disputes have companies in the airport sector faced throughout the pandemic? And are there any particular types of disputes that you think companies will face in the coming months?
5: Well, COVID is an event without precedence in the airport sector. I think disputes are yet to come. So far, uh, what we have seen is that in general, parties were open to try to negotiate solutions to allow everyone to survive. Even governments took a proactive action and issued measures in favor of this airport sector to mitigate the effects of the pandemic. So to me, I think we we are still yet to see the uh, disputes, which may arise, for instance, in the airport sector, between airport operators and public authorities, which are grantors in the context of concessions, in order to, for instance, rebalance concession contracts. And also, we may have disputes between airport operators and commercial partners, I mean, people who uh, develop commercial activities within the airports, which have their business impacted by the closure of uh, airports during several months
0: last year. The pandemic has had an important transformative effect on the arbitration community. We have learned how to conduct hearings remotely, almost overnight. Institutions have adapted their rules, etc. What do you think the arbitration community can do to best fit the needs of arbitration users in the new normal?
5: Well, I think that during pandemics, we went virtual, too virtual. This was good, in a sense, mainly from a client's perspective, because it reduced costs and sometimes time, uh, which is always uh, the client's concern. But I think that uh, now we should try to become less virtual. I don't know exactly what is the good balance to have, but I I still think that in a hearing, for instance, eye contact, body language, maybe are important sometimes in a cross-examination, for instance. Uh, and if we are deprived of that, we may lose something. Uh, so I again, I, I don't know what is the good balance. And I think virtual is a progress and it should not be abandoned. But we should... Go back to uh, a hybrid uh, format, uh, this would be ideal.
1: Today, I'm sitting down with Natalie Sequeda. She is team leader and legal counsel on one of ICSID's case management teams.
6: Welcome, Natalie. It's a pleasure. Hi, Reka. Thank you so much for the invitation.
1: Sure. Well, let's jump right in. Revision and reform of arbitral institutional rules has been a major development during this period, encouraged or even pushed forward due to pandemic limitations and the need to maintain access to justice. In this context, can you share with us how ICSID has pivoted as to caseload and industry trends
6: in the investor state context? Thank you, Rika. In fact, exit's uh, amendment process started way before the pandemic, and as you said, it was probably um, the pandemic what uh, made it made us uh, realize that uh, the process that we had embarked on a few years ago was in the right direction. Uh, particularly uh, because of the promotion of the filing, um, the electronic filing, and the virtual hearings, I think that was a big step forward. And that showed us that the possibility of making uh, these international proceedings accessible to all of our users around the world was now being made possible by the technology that now, a year later into the pandemic, we're all very used to. But these were proposals that were already uh, being made in the context of the, of the amendment of the exit proceedings. And uh, working paper number five that was issued in back in a few weeks ago, June 9, 15, is a reflection of all these efforts and what the pandemic has uh, taught us um, to all of us. Uh, in terms of the industry trends and uh, in the investor uh, state context, I have to say that we have seen a variety of sectors and, and industries and countries involved in the, in the proceedings uh, during the last uh, year. We haven't seen particular cases uh, arising out of the, of the COVID uh, measures. Uh, this was a rumor and something that was very commented in, in different form but this was not uh, really a matter that we um that we saw um it was for us the pandemic and the revision and the reform of the arbitral institutional rules what brought us was the um, a more um, tangible um, way of seeing that all the proposals that, that we were uh, making in the working papers uh, that we have been working on were real neat and uh, that were really uh, going to be used and implemented uh, throughout the world. Thank you so much. You know, you've raised a really interesting point about the rules revision
1: process for any arbitral institution, even more specifically for ICSID and the trajectory by which we we evolve rules and standards to the commentary from stakeholders. To that end, can you tease out for us two working papers were released during the pandemic period? Of course, not as a result of it, as we've already discussed, but what did these provisions reveal about the changing nature of the ISDS practice? They include now comments on fact finding and mediation, as well as if you could share two part question, <laughs> what's in the pipeline for the future?
6: Yeah, the mediation and fact-finding rules reflect the need that the member states have uh, voiced uh, during these uh, discussions of wider or broader uh, wave mechanisms uh, to address the different uh, disputes that they foresee uh, they might might encounter in the future. I think uh, states are eager to um, explore different mechanisms outside of arbitration. I think uh, all the the actors, all the law firms, counsel um, have to have an open mind about these proceedings. We um, have rarely used the fact finding um, proceedings um, that are have been um, in, in the exit rules uh, for a long time, but we are seeing a lot of interest, particularly in the in the field of mediation, um, and I foresee that the in the future we're going to see a lot of interest in uh, app- applying all these rules in 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 real life in terms of the pipeline um we are expecting the working paper number five uh, comments to be submitted by august of 2021. And our objective is that the proposed amended rules would be in place by early 2022, um, approved by the end of 2021. Uh, so we are hoping that next year, uh, we will have a, a full uh, uh, and applicable new exit rules for all the exit users.
1: Well, there you have it, everyone. To stay tuned until early 2022 uh, for the entry of the new rules. But- also stay attuned to the evolution of these rules and the comments that are forthcoming. Natalie, it has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Reka. Today, I'm sitting down with Luis Martinez, vice president of the AAA ICDR in their New York office. He directs business on the East Coast of the United States, Central and South America, the Caribbean, the UK and the EU. Luis, it is a pleasure, thank you so much for sitting down with Arbitration Insider.
7: Thank you very much, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: So let's jump right in. Question one, from the onset of the pandemic to now, the US has seen waves of COVID-19 cases. In your role, can you describe how the institution has pivoted in these times to be current, open, and available?
7: Well, thanks for the question, Rika. It certainly was at the beginning, a bit of a challenge to transition to working remotely, although a number of our employees did have that capability. We did have to increase the number of staff working remotely. And the first task was really to expand those capabilities quickly. Uh, We did so uh, quite rapidly with providing them with encrypted laptops using VPN and secure phone apps and uh, maintaining, of course, our commitment to cybersecurity and confidentiality and data privacy. I would say there was minimal disruption at the early transition period of uh, two to three weeks, but after that, it really went smoothly. And I think the fact that for some time we had been transitioning to a paperless electronic system really helped us uh, during the COVID pandemic. As you know, we have a proprietary electronic case management platform for all our administrative steps. Uh, I sign on in the morning and each case has their own electronic case folder. I can see where the cases are, the correspondence, the timeframes, and any steps that may be behind schedule appear flagged in red. Uh, At the same time, the users have access to all of their case information remotely they can access their cases they can upload documents uh, they can process invoices and they can see the status and that is connected to the third platform for the arbitrators uh, they're the ones that can open up uh, the cases that they've been appointed to and they can also see where the case is what documents are there for them to review and they can upload invo- invoices as well so all three are really uh, integrated and it's a fully electronic remotely administered system which was very helpful uh, during, during this period. I would say that the main challenge administratively or institutionally speaking concerned in-person hearings, You know, with our offices closed, we had been offering parties the possibility of using Zoom for the hearings. We actually prepared protocols for the parties to consider all the practical issues of proceeding virtually. We had model orders that the arbitrators could, in fact, use to discuss uh, the option of proceeding virtually. uh, What were the discussion points and issues for them to consider? All of that can be found on the virtual hearing sites at icdr.org. And while I did see some early reluctance early on to postpone these cases, I think as the COVID restrictions were extended, parties uh, were becoming more proficient and comfortable with the technology. So we did see that being increased and and a broader acceptance as uh, the COVID pandemic lasted much longer than anyone thought. In fact, on the site that we have for virtual hearings, we actually have statistics that we have tracked. And uh, we had over 10,000 virtual hearing events um, in some various forms. And I do think that uh, even going forward post-COVID, We are going to see a continuation of proceeding virtually. Parties are more comfortable with it. The users are telling us obviously they like the cost savings. It's offered greater options in some of the smaller cases or perhaps mediation where cost is an issue. You now have this tool, especially in the international arena to proceed with virtual hearings.
1: Thanks so much, Luis. Do visit the site, a focus on efficiency economy with a spotlight on mediation. It's been a pleasure, Luis. Thanks again.
7: Rika, thanks for the opportunity and good afternoon.
0: We hope you found the second episode of Arbitration Insider interesting. Please consult the material made available on the podcast page, share this podcast, send us your comments, and most importantly, tune in for the next episode. Thanks, everyone.